Hey, it's good to be back with you, Evergreen, after a week away in Calgary. And I just appreciate that I can travel between Calgary and here and uh, still do this transitional role that I'm in here with you. I know we're uh, a fewer in numbers here today, and I know a number of you are watching online here today. There's a lot of sickness going around, uh, both a stomach bug and, a, uh, and some more COVID going through our community. So uh, we're glad that those of us that can be here can be together and we can uh, worship together. We're going to talk about some worship together here in a moment. Uh, those of you that are at home online, uh, you may want to know that we are going to celebrate uh, communion at the end of our time, worship time here together. And so you might want to, while I'm preaching, go grab uh, some emblems in your home so that you can participate virtually with us. Uh, so uh, we'll try and do that together here. Uh, I don't think I need to tell any of you that our world it feels kind of complex these days. Uh, there's just, I, maybe life has always been complex, but there's a few things right now that make it even more complex, it seems like. One of the things that makes our lives more complex is the number of choices we have in this world. We go to the grocery store and we choose which of the brands we will buy at the store. And we go to our streaming services and try to get the best entertainment value for our dollar. And we go to various things and try and decide what are the best things. And we have so many choices, more choices than we have ever had before. We have to choose between Starbucks or Tim Hortons. Oh, wait. We're in Simcoe, right? We only have Tim Hortons. But maybe if you are uh, going to the grocery store, you have to choose whether you're going to buy that that shade-grown, fair-trade coffee that costs a little bit more, so you can brew that at home, or do you just buy the cheapest stuff on the shelf and not worry about who it's harming, right? All these choices we have to make in our world. Um, how do we recycle well? How do we reduce our carbon footprint? All these questions get tangled up inside of ourselves, and it's tough to know. Uh, when I forget my fabric bag in the car, should I run back out to the car and get that bag, or can I buy that 10-cent plastic bag and hope that my neighbors don't see me carrying that single-use plastic bag out, the grocery, out of the grocery store? These are, maybe these, some of these are kind of trivial things that we think about, and others are a little more challenging for us. Um, but Several years ago, I was living in Vancouver at the time, and I was, uh, and it was in a time where it seemed like everybody was concerned about the environment, and everybody was trying to avoid the big box stores in Vancouver. Uh, and you may not know this about Vancouver, but I think to this day, Vancouver has kept Walmart out of their the city proper. You can go to Walmart in Burnaby, but you can't go to Walmart in Vancouver. And uh, it was that kind of feeling of they wanted to keep the big box stores out and they wanted to use the small local stores and they 
they were very environmentally conscious. And I was going to school on the UBC campus, and I was supposed to meet some of my fellow students, and I think we were doing a small group together or something like that. And I was suddenly struck with the fact that I was about to walk into this meeting with a cup of Starbucks coffee in a disposable cup. And I kind of felt like, I bet everybody in that room is going to be drinking coffee from the local small roaster, and they're all going to be in their, their reusable mugs, and I felt kind of bad all of a sudden. And I was so tangled up about this that I seriously considered dumping that coffee in the closest bin and going to my meeting without my coffee. But then I would have felt bad for the five bucks I just spent on a Starbucks coffee. Not to mention the guy outside of the Starbucks who had asked me if I had any spare change. These are the kinds of things we can get tangled up about inside. Maybe it's just me, but I, I suspect we're all a little bit like this. We can get tangled up about how to live out this life in our world with many choices and the complexities of life that will will get at us. Now, some of these are, you know, kind of trivial things, and, you know, maybe we shouldn't worry too much about them. But, you know, there's other things that are more challenging for us. How do I relate to that neighbor down the street who lives a very different life from my life? Uh, how do I do that? As, how do I live my life, my Christian life, authentically with others around me? How do I disagree with others in the church sometimes? How do I do that authentically and lovingly and do that in the right spirit in the church? How do I do that when there seems to be no theological or ethical choice that isn't going to offend somebody, right? Well, Let's take a look at a passage of scripture here. We're going to continue to look at uh, the life of Jesus and who is this Jesus through the gospel of John. And today we're going to take a look at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. John chapter 2, 13 through 22. Now, in many of our Bibles, this section will be labeled, Jesus Clears the Temple. But I would suggest to you that it could also just as easily be called Jesus Restores Worship. So we're going to look at this together and see how this affects our life as we live out this life in complex times in our world. John 2, 13 through 22. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. 
What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. What are we to do with this passage of scripture? What are we to do with this kind of outburst of Jesus who goes into the temple area and he's chasing people and animals out of the temple and he he makes a whip and he's flipping over tables. This doesn't sound like the Jesus that we've already been reading about in the first couple of chapters of John's gospel, does it? We, we've talked in, these, in this series about Jesus as God, the loving Heavenly Father God that we all rely upon. We've talked about Jesus as the Creator God. We've talked about him being the Messiah. We've talked about him being the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We've talked about him being the Lord of life, the giver of life, and the Lord of our lives. And then we've seen him as the loving man who provides wine for a wedding feast that had run out of wine so that they could celebrate together. This just seems so different, doesn't it? He's, he's flipping over tables and he's chasing people out of the temple. And yet the prophecies suggested that he would be passionate about his father's temple. And so uh, what do we do with this? Well, perhaps we need to understand a little bit better the Passover and why this was an important aspect of Jewish worship. Um, The passage tells us that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Now, in this era of the uh, Israelite worship, the Jewish worship, they, most of the Passover had kind of passed to the home. Not a lot of it was done in the temple at this time. They would, uh, they would slaughter, ritually slaughter a lamb in their homes, and they would uh, then roast that lamb, and they would eat that lamb together in their homes, and they would eat it with bitter herbs, and they would eat it with unleavened bread, and, and uh, they would do most of this in their homes. They might have taken some of the blood from that lamb and taken it to the temple, and the priests would have uh, poured it out on the altar. But most of it was done in the homes. And yet, there were a lot of people who traveled great distances to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It was kind of like a a pilgrimage thing for them. They would go to Jerusalem because they wanted that year to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so the... There were people prepared for this at the, um, at the temple. So they would, you, you wouldn't necessarily bring your lambs from home. Uh, you might need to buy a lamb when you got to Jerusalem. You might need to uh, buy some of the things there. And that was why the money changers were there, because they, you might need to exchange your foreign currency from another place and exchange it for the local currency. And so they were there to provide that service. Others were there selling doves, and and sometimes there were other sacrifices that you would do, not just the Passover sacrifice, but you would come for your maybe once-in-your-lifetime or once-every-few-years trip to Jerusalem, and you would make a number of sacrifices at that time. And so the things that they are doing in the temple area there are not necessarily things... They are things that they should have been doing, in fact... But it's not what they were doing, it's how they were doing it. 
And so if we look at what's going on here, these money changers were likely, they would set the rates for how that money was exchanged, and they were probably charging a fair bit of money for their services, especially at Passover. And there were others who had inflated the costs of the sacrifices, sacrificial animals. And Jesus points out in particular the doves, and he goes to those who have doves that they're selling and tells them to get these things out of there. You see, the doves were um, a substitute sacrifice that could be made at Passover. If you didn't have the money to buy a lamb, or if your own flock was too precious to uh, kill one of your lambs and eat it, you could actually go out and just catch a wild dove and ritually slaughter it, and cook that dove, and eat that dove. Now, not many of us would eat pigeons these days, but, you know, think something like Cornish game hen or something like that, right? It was a natural part of their diet, right? And so um, this was particularly an egregious offense for these people to be selling doves at inflated prices because the poor people needed to sacrifice doves, right? And so if they're selling doves at an expensive price, that was uh, an egregious offense against the poor of the day, the very people that Jesus had come to rescue, and the very people that the people of Israel were supposed to be protecting. So it wasn't what they were doing, it was how they were doing it. And Jesus is perturbed, it would seem, at these people who have decided to, um, decided to sell doves when people could go out and catch their own dove and would be allowed to sacrifice that. Um, I think this is the lesson for us here today in this passage. It's not only what we do, but it's how we do it. It's how they worshipped God. You see, Jesus came to bring glory to God. Jesus came to restore worship. Another way of talking about glory is worship. When Jesus said he came to bring glory to God, he was bringing right worship to God. We see in John chapter 17, verse 4, where it says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You see, Jesus worshipped and brought glory to God the Father by the work he did here on earth. And then in John chapter 15, verse 8, we read that Jesus says, When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, and this brings great glory to my Father. So Jesus came to do the work of God, which would bring glory to God, which was an act of worship. Just as Tamil read for us earlier, this whole idea of our entire lives are to be an act of worship to God. Jesus' whole ministry was an act of worship to God, and now our whole lives can be an act of worship to God. And so it's not just what we do that matters to God, but it's how we do it. This is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. It's not about just what we do, but how we do it. 
We see back in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain and Abel each brought their sacrifices before God. Abel's was accepted by God because Abel did it in the right manner and he had the right motive, the right intention for uh, bringing a sacrifice to God. Cain's sacrifice was rejected. We see this in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. There, um, Samuel is asked to choose the next king for Israel. Saul has been rejected by God by this time, and the next king of Israel must be chosen. And so Samuel looks upon all of the sons of Jesse. And really, when you think about it, any of those sons probably could have made a king for Israel. And Samuel looks at one of them and says, oh, there, there we go. This is the next king of Israel. But God tells him, no, I'm not looking at the outside of the man. First uh, Samuel 16, verse 7, we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, we see this theme again this, the fact that God looks at our hearts. Um, I'm reading it from the message paraphrase here, which uh, really brings it to life. But Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, Search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them, treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Well, in one last passage of scripture that illustrates this is in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 10 through 14, where the apostle Paul says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is, it is shameful even to talk about things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. It's God looking at our intentions, isn't it? It's God looking at what's in our hearts. It's God looking not at what we show on the outside, but what we intend on the inside. And that kind of works both ways. When we make mistakes, God knows what our intention was and what our motivation was. And when we choose evil, he also sees that in our lives, doesn't he? I'm thinking back to that story I told you at the beginning of my Starbucks coffee in my disposable cup. Uh, was I more concerned about what my friends would think about me? Or was I, did I really care about the environment? Did I really care about which coffee company I was using? Did I really care about the man who'd asked for spare change? I think you know the answer. I was more concerned about what my friends were going to think about me than what I was actually doing with buying my coffee. God is concerned about our hearts. He knows what is going on in our hearts and what we really care about. And so Jesus comes to the temple and sees people who are concerned with the acts of worship, but are not concerned with the heart of worship. 
they go through the ritual of worshiping. But they invalidate their worship by taking advantage of the poor and price gouging the rest of the people. And so Jesus clears them out of the temple. I kind of wish that John would have told us what happened the next day. Uh, Were those same sellers back in the temple area the next day? I suspect they probably set up shop again the next day. Just one rabbi chasing them out wouldn't really have been enough to get them to stop what they were doing. But I suspect some of them must have thought about it and thought, maybe I should reduce the price on this. Maybe I should be more fair with my exchange rate on uh, the money that we're exchanging here. Maybe there were a few doves given to poor people. You see, Jesus was teaching them that it's not the outward acts of worship that matter, but what's in our hearts. We see this with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so concerned about the rules and regulations. They had rules about how they could tithe even the the smallest of herbs from their gardens. And they would make sure that they did the right tithe on that. But they really didn't care about the poor, the very people that God had asked them to take care of with their tithes. We see this in the way they treated the Sabbath. They were so concerned about what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath that they had really prevented anyone from doing anything good on the Sabbath day. In fact, they were so concerned that Jesus was healing people and doing good things on the Sabbath day that they eventually executed him for doing that. Their motives, their intentions were very messed up inside of their lives. This has happened many times in human history. Uh, It seems like we humans have a tough time keeping things straight and, and not turning it into rituals and habits. Uh, Paul the Apostle went and preached at Athens in Greece, and he saw that the people of Athens were incredibly religious people. In Acts 17, verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. And then he went on to tell them about true worship and how to truly worship God. The church at the beginning of the first century did well. We read about it in Acts chapter 2, and we see that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings, and they were a great community of faith, and there were miracles continuing to happen in the church. But it didn't take long for things to change in the church. And in the 1500s, in 1517, the church had gone quite far astray. And so Martin Luther found it to be so filled with corruption and bad motives that he went to the church and he he nailed his 95 responses to the church. 95 things that he said the church needed to do to reform, to change, to be a better church. And that's part of that reformation that has gone on even to this day in the world. In the last few years of the church, the last three years of the church, I think we've been doing some internal uh, wrestling as well, haven't we? Uh, Not being able to meet together in person, uh, some of the things that went on, we've wrestled with, well, why do we go to church? 
What does this mean? Is it just to go and, and hear some beautiful music performed? Is it just to go and hear a preacher speak? Is it... I appreciate that uh, what Tamil often does is she helps us to just settle down for a minute. Think about why are we here? What is this all about that we're doing? And I think that's something we need to be doing a lot more as we wrestle with why do we come to church? Of course, the last three years have caused some uh, of us to rethink why we come to church. And it's even caused some disagreements in the church, hasn't it? Um, that's part of what the healing team has been uh, uh, telling, working through. And now they've invited us to a, a service that will be a, a healing time to think through how do we restore our worship? What, is, what do we really want to be doing together as a people? And how do we live together in community and love and unity even when we disagree on some things? Uh, John Stackhouse, in an article in Faith Today, says that disagreements are inevitable in the church of God. He says the Bible is a complex book. And life is often complicated, and often there is no theological and ethical choice available to us that will not offend and even hurt people we care about. We have to make hard decisions that will not please everyone. How we defend and commend God's truth matters as much as our commitment to correct doctrine and sound ethics. Don't miss that. He says, how we defend and commend God's truth is just as important as having correct doctrine. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. He's teaching us that our heart matters. How you worship, why you worship, how we worship, how I worship matters as much as what I do when I come to church or when I live out this life. And I think that's what we all wrestle with every day of our lives, all these complexities that we've been talking about, how it is challenging to figure out how to live this life as a faithful Christian in this world. Let's think about some of these areas of our lives for a moment. My career, my profession, my job. Is it just a means of making a living and putting uh, food on the table? Or do I seek to do that career, that profession, as an act of bringing glory to God every day? Uh, Maybe in my creative life, do I create things that are designed to be an extra addition to my income or just for my own satisfaction? Or do I create things to bring glory to God? How about in my, um, my marriage? Is my intention to bring glory to God in my marriage? Is my intention to be a joy to my spouse? Or is my intention to have my needs met? In parenting, am I seeking to have these great kids that everybody uh, marvels at and says, oh, look at how great their kids are? Or is it more about helping our kids grow up to know the glory of God? What about even in our disagreements with each other? Uh, 
Do we seek to prove ourselves right and others wrong? Or do we seek to live in unity and bring glory to God in even our disagreements? You know, we're never going to be consistent in all of our behaviors. Uh, We're all going to make mistakes. We need to ask God to guide our motivations, guide our hearts, help us to be the people he desires to be inside so that he sees our hearts and knows that we seek to love him and follow him. Can we recognize that there will be times when we will be wrong? And humbly recognize that we might need to listen as much as we speak. Colossians chapter 3. I'll read verses 12 through 14 and then jump down to verse 23. But there we read some important words. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, Humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. There's a song that's been around for a lot of years now that uh, we sometimes sing in church, but um, by Matt Redmond, he has a song called The Heart of Worship. And in that song, he says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. You're looking into my heart. You're looking into my heart. And it's all about you, Jesus. I think that's what Jesus is calling us to in that passage there. He's calling our hearts to the right way of looking at these things. He's calling us to look at him And he's calling us to focus on him. And if we focus on him, he will lead our hearts in the right direction. Would you pray together with me? God, that's the kind of worship we want to offer to you. Whether it be this type of worship that the Israelite people were called to or what we're called to today. Our hearts need to be right with you and our hearts need to be right with one another. And so God, we we ask you to make us your people who rest in your right motivations and your right intentions. Help us to be the people of God clothe ourselves with love so that we might love one another and be in unity together. We may disagree, but together we are united in following Jesus. These things we pray in his name. Amen.